Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. It's time for another podcast with you. <laughs> it's morning. us. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Another- Another day when we weren't supposed to be recording and we're recording because you had a birth when we were supposed to be recording. So, this But is... it felt like the old days when births would interrupt the podcast recordings because that happened to us all the time in L.A. Yeah, it did. It did. Like so good old uh, days. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us. I know that I haven't said this in a while, but I know that we have so limited time in our lives sometimes. So the fact that everybody listening is giving us an hour, hour and a half of their time once a week is uh, an honor for both Bliss and I just want to say that. Yes. So um, you had a birth. And well, we got- yes, I attended a birth. I did. I did. Yeah. We got hunted because of it. So let's hear about <laughs> that first, unless you have other things you want to tell us. Um. About- yeah. So, um, Mama was a multip. Um, she had her first baby at the birth center last time. And this time she really wanted individual care and wanted, just wanted to stay home. Um, she felt like there were a lot of people there last time and she just wanted, she has a very, very tiny little studio. So the plan was that us supporting her, were going to be outside, but it ended up of course being in the middle of the night. And, um, so her, uh, the birth tub was in her. Oh, wait. oh never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> the birth I was tub was. I was in worried her... I forgot to hit the recording button, but I did. <laughs> um, the birth tub was in her like little nook where her table normally is in her kitchen, and um, on the other side of the wall was their bedroom. So we kind of just sat on the bed as quiet as possible and let them labor, so we didn't have to sit outside. Um, and it was one of those nights, I bet, I bet there's a lot of birth workers that can relate, um, where you've just fallen into the deepest sleep possible and the phone rings <laughs> and you're like, okay, I can do this. I can get up and get dressed. Um, and as I was driving over there, you know, it's funny in Santa Barbara, everything is like eight to 10 minutes in LA. I could drive 40 minutes to get somewhere, you know? And I'm driving and I think, gosh, I've been driving a long time and it had only, it still said six minutes. <laughs> like, like either really sleepy or in some kind of time warp. Um, so I got there and, you know, it was just a beautiful, straightforward labor. Um, I suspected she might've had a little bit larger baby, but you know, I wasn't really like concerned about anything. Um, but she started pushing as a multip and pushed really, really hard, <laughs> like, like a prime up would push like with all of her might. And, um, we pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And I was like, Hmm, things that make you go, Hmm, right. Like, huh. A multip really pushing with all of her might kind of thinking, well, are we maybe going to deal with the shoulder dystocia? Right. And I'm thinking not, not my first birth back. Like, let's have a beautiful, like easy birth, right? Frayed. Let's protect everyone. Um, and then we were having intermittent D cells, you know, like 
sound great. And then we would have a D cell and we would change positions and it would sound great for a while. And then we'd have another D cell. And, um, and then we had one D cell that dropped into the seventies and I was like, all right, let's have your baby. And so we got her on the birth stool and the baby came right out. Um, and ended up being eight pounds, 10 ounces, not, not a big, really big baby, but, um, she said she had the exact same thing last time. And the stool was the thing that ended up, uh, working. And the baby came out with one of those um, kind of creases in its head that is um, gives you the perception that maybe the baby was OP. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, but we can't figure out when the baby was ever OP. So it's just one of those mysteries. I've been talking to a bunch of people. I'm like, what do you think? Right. Um and we all came to the conclusion that there are just some things in birth that are just mysterious. And we don't exactly know, but that baby was hung up somehow. And that's why she was pushing so hard. What position What position was she pushing in for all the time before you got her on the birth stool? We were in the tub. So she was on her hands and knees. And then she was like reclining back in her, her partner's arms. And then she was on the bed on her back. And then she was on her side. Um, and then the birth stool was super effective. I mean, literally, I think it was a couple of pushes on the birth stool and the baby came out. So could you ever, could you ever take your birth stool and submerse it in the water? There are them- some birth stools that can go in the water. Mine probably could, but it's, um, I think it, well, she, if she was sitting on, it would be fine, but there's that cub one. It's like a blow up one that you can put in the shower or in a tub. Yeah. Um, so anyways, congratulations to them. I had a beautiful baby boy and, um, and it was just, it was nice to be back in the birth world for sure. So even though you were deeply, deeply asleep, it turned out to be a good middle of the night for you, right? (laughs) Yes. Always, always a great middle of the night when we meet a new soul was absolutely beautiful. Um, I had my family picnic, um, Saturday before yeah so that was really lovely none of my LA peeps came up unfortunately I was hoping that maybe some of my LA peeps would come up um but it was beautiful it was a beautiful day it was great to just gather in the park and um you know just be together it was really really sweet yeah I think it's I think it you know I can't say why none of the LA peeps showed up but I can just tell you that that I remember in LA, did I really want to drive two hours or two and a half hours for, for something? And, you know, you, you just, it, it diminishes what you do when you live in a town where everything is difficult to get to. Yeah. That's why I loved your story last time about, you know, oh, I just walked over to the Santa Barbara bowl. I mean, like, you know, it's just an easy walk and that, that sort of thing. It's just, you know, the same thing in my little town, there's nothing to do here, but I can walk <laughs> to, I can walk to do nothing all the time. So it's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> So and you, you have, how was your week? It was good. I, I it's good. I, I I want to tell you something first, but um, I was on like three different events online. Uh, one was mm-hmm. the intentional birth uh, masterclass, where I spoke about twins to a bunch of doulas, which was fun. And then I uh, Nathan and Sarah had me on uh, as a guest on the Born Free Method uh, gathering that they do, I guess, weekly, and we talked about the same sort of stuff that we always talk about. And to a, a group of people that subscribe to their born free method, and, you know, there were 15, I think 15 people on the, on the thing that was pretty cool. And then I did um, a pain-free birth podcast. Um, and the pain-free birth podcast uh, isn't out yet. She's, she's just starting it. So she's accumulating a whole bunch of events, but if you follow pain-free birth on Instagram, you know who I'm talking about. 
name's Karen. And then one other thing that I did yesterday, which was really kind of cool, is I did uh, a TV show called A Counter Narrative with Christy Lee, L-E-I-G-H. Um, we did an almost 45-minute uh, interview on her TV show. And it's one of those internet TV shows like One American News or uh, you know other networks. It's not like your network. You don't get it on your cable TV. You have to go online to get it. And um, the website is American Media Periscope, AMP. And if people wanted to go onto that website, they could find the recording, which is supposed to be released today, of me having a conversation with a news person reaching an audience that you and I normally would never reach. So this is kind mm -hmm. of exciting for me. Mm -hmm. And then I think I might have mentioned before that next week I'll be in Arizona. Uh, we're going to have to reschedule our podcast again. I think I emailed you about that because on Wednesday I'm going to be interviewed by Turning Point USA which is uh, Charlie Kirk's um, organization. And I don't have really any idea what they're going to talk about, but I'm sure it's going to have to do with healthcare freedom uh, and because that's their 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 big issue mm -hmm. uh, is freedom in general. And so the tyranny that's going on in other parts of healthcare right now, and they probably wanted to hear more about what's going on uh, in the obstetric world as far as tyranny mm -hmm. goes. So I'm looking forward to that opportunity. And again, reaching an audience that I generally wouldn't reach. Great. So Lindsay texted me yesterday. I think it was yesterday. It might have been the day before yesterday. I think it was yesterday. Um, that our type 1 diabetic that we delivered, uh, excuse me, that we assisted in delivery um, several years ago was pregnant again. And she had her second baby um, unassisted before Lindsay could get there mm. yesterday at home. <laughs> <laughs> and the baby's blood sugar was only 25 afterwards, but the baby was latching and feeding and not jittery and not anything whatsoever. They had, um, you know, sugar and they had uh, a frozen donor milk available, but the baby really didn't need anything special. And I did a deep dive into that. And actually uh, a newborn blood sugar at 25, if the baby's asymptomatic is not something that you have to worry about. Even right. though 25 sounds ridiculously low for, yeah. for any, any adult human being, it's it's okay. If they're 25 and jittery, then they need to have uh, attention, like either an IV or given some uh, glucose gel or something like that, bring their sugar. So, But this baby was perfect. Its color was perfect. Everything was fine. So here's my uh, type one. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of supporting, you know, properly selected people who otherwise would be considered high risk. Yeah. Um, yeah, I use the word people again. I keep that's really slipping out a lot lately. Properly selected women who uh, are usually considered high risk, who, um, you know, in the medical model, she would have been, she was 39 weeks and five days or something. I can't remember exactly. And she would have been induced a, or a week or two earlier in the medical model. The baby would have been observed in the nursery because all infants are diabetic mothers in most hospitals go to the nursery. She had a beautiful unassisted home birth. It was pretty, yeah. not planned. Pretty cool. That's amazing. And when you said they had sugar, what do you mean? Well, they had they had they had uh, like a glucose solution that they would they would could theoretically give the baby. You're not supposed to be giving the baby water, but a baby that is diabetic, um, the the treatment is actually a, a, like a glucose gel. You can buy it comes like in a tube, and you can give them like a pasty gel and put it in their mouth. Um, 
And uh, but but none of that was necessary. Yeah, because I thought when we've done that before, we've always just had donor milk. But is there a reason why we would want to have that on hand if we were supporting somebody? Um, it's new to me. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. Just ask. And, and again, her sugars got high at the end. So mom's sugars got high. Uh-huh. And so it wasn't surprising that the baby's putting out insulin in response to mom's sugars. Suddenly the placenta stops pulsating, the baby stops getting transferred from mother and it's insulin's high. So it shoots its sugar down. But I was, I was surprised to read that actually a, a number of 25 isn't worrisome unless the baby is showing signs. And where did you read that, Stu? Um, I don't know. I have, I, I, I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Sounds right. great. And today's topic is um, we're going to, uh, not necessarily a deep dive, but we're going to talk about due dates today because it's something that every pregnant family um is either personally obsessed about or they have people around them who are pressuring them because of this quote unquote day that the baby is supposed to arrive. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yes, we will. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot of other podcasts and blogs and things that have talked about this, but because we're constantly hearing in our letters from people about you know, I, you know, I'm one day past 40 weeks and my doctor is freaking out, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. So we've got, mm -hmm. a, we've got, I don't think you can ever pound on this enough to make sure the word gets out there that there's a lot of things wrong with that. But before we do that, we've got a couple of things we have to talk about. I think we have one letter written to us by Aaron that you're going to read. And then I've got some more ACOG stupidity that I want to just emphasize because it's going to be affecting many, 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 many pregnant women. So let's start with Aaron's letter, if that's okay with you. Okay, great. So Aaron says, I wanted to say thank you for providing evidence-based information for birthing women. You both inspire me to have a home birth. Every time I hear that, I just feel like I can check a box, Stu, uh, that I have accomplished what I'd love to accomplish in life. I, um, you know, my I, I agree. I agree, Bliss. It's it's a thing that sort of, I can't say that's the only thing I live for, but <laughs> but when I hear that stuff that we are, that, that we and our colleagues, like-minded colleagues out there are making a difference and that women are waking up, this is the most important thing. It's the most important thing. Um, or it's of equal importance with many other things, but it's not lesser of importance than anything of how we give birth. Oh yeah. And the, and the and what's happening in the hospital model is every day we you might hear something good like Northwestern is teaching breach but for every good step forward there's eight steps backwards. Mm -hmm. Okay, sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, we interrupted Aaron. Okay. My first son was an unnecessary in where the doctor induced me, never turned up the pitocin. And at five o'clock said, you know, we could keep doing this, but I don't see things changing much for you. Instead, you can meet your baby right now. Talk about uh, something that a woman in labor is going to have a hard time turning down, right? Um, I'll never forget the intense feelings and laying on the table while the anesthesiologist talked about sports. I asked if someone could please speak with me and they ignored my request. 
I later asked the doctor if I was a candidate for VBAC. His response, most girls, and she puts an exclamation point. I guess she didn't like being called a girl. Um, try, but the outcome is always, almost always a C-section anyway. Lies. Fast forward eight. <laughs> fast forward eight years. I was pregnant with my second baby with my new husband. My fearless doula encouraged me to look into home birth. I love that. And her hunch was right. It was right for me. I was terrified, but your podcast kept me sane with facts, knowledge, and encouragement. My age back was 31 hours, and I wanted to give up over and over again. But with the support of my doula, midwife, and chiropractor husband, who recommends your podcast to all of his pregnant patients, we did it. It was hard, and it was beautiful. I had my third son at home just a few months ago, and it was once again a beautiful experience and a much easier labor. Our birthing days are now complete, but thank you from the bottom of my heart for helping me feel heard and seen, for understanding the fear and trauma of C-sections that is normalized and treating VBAC as a normal vaginal birth. Most of all, thank you for having me understanding and giving me, giving me. Oh, giving me, thank you, understanding and context to the fears that the medical status quo put in my head, Erin Healy. Thanks, Aaron, for like taking the time after all this time to write us a letter and let us know the difference that we made. It means a lot to us. Yeah, you've got your hands full with three kids, but uh, <laughs> the idea that, that people write us and some people are writing us like two and three page letters. So I I love that role. I, I mean, I, I I think I've told you and listen, I've told you we read everything. We don't always respond to everything, but we read everything. And even when people write us their whole birth stories, there's not something we can do about it other than say, wow, you know, that's, you know, I try to acknowledge them in a, in a, in a brief response in their email. But the idea that that they take the time to do that to, uh, and write it personally to us. Now, maybe it's the, maybe they're cutting and pasting it. I don't care. doesn't matter. The fact that they've journaled it and, and saved it, something that they're going to someday read to their children will be will be memorable and and make this process of of reproduction more than just some medical procedure yes it's an event yeah okay well speaking of medicalized procedures all right the american college of OBGYN is at it again they're at it again i got an email from them from district nine saying quote ACOG unequivocally supports ACIP. That's the uh, advisory committee on something, something from the NIH. I forgot what the IP stands for, but uh, supports ACIP's recommendation for the use of the maternal RSV vaccine in pregnancy during 32 to 36 weeks gestation using seasonal administration. I want to repeat that. ACOG unequivocally supports ACIP. The national and global burden of RSV disease demonstrates how critical it is to prevent this virus in infants. Global burden. Yes. Mm -hmm. right. I mean, those are the kind of those are the kind of words you you give you put out there to people who haven't done a lot of research. It's global burden, and it just sounds so so serious. Why would you not want to take care of that? Yeah, I think I think gravity is increased around the world because it's such a burden. We're all feeling 
we're all feeling heavier because it's such a global burden. You know, and if it's a global burden, well, is it really a global burden in Western countries? Is it really a global burden in the United States? We're gonna right. we're gonna discuss that in a second. But you're right. That's really good that you picked up on that because they use hyperbolic language like that all totally. the time. Yeah, it's an existential crisis. I mean, how many things do, are existential? But we still exist. By the way, you know, existential crisis is supposed to be something that threatens your very very existence. And how many times have we heard that term in the last decade or longer? Um, we're, we're still here. Yeah, and we're still here. It's amazing. Okay. Um, let's see. The national and global burden of RSV demonstrates how critical it is to prevent this virus in infants. ACOG believes that maternal RSV vaccine is efficacious. And they're not saying it's safe and effective. They're using the term efficacious now. And it, it is necessary that parents have this option to protect their newborns from RSV after birth. ACOG is currently making updates to its clinical guidance that will be released in the coming days. I wonder what level of Evidence. Uh, evidence. Thank you. <laughs> mm -hmm. What level of evidence will this will be? Will this be A or will this be C? It can't possibly be A because A is based on what? Randomized controlled trials, mm -hmm. of which there have been none with this vaccine. So I did a um, reel a while back, a few weeks ago on this, and people can go back and find it on my Instagram page. Scroll back to early September and you'll find a reel about it. But because I, I found a better analysis from um, Substack, which is a, I told you is a lot, place where I go to get a lot of my information because these are independent writers uncoerced by corporations or bosses or anything like that. And you can take it for what it's worth. But their reputation for them is everything because they, you know, if you lie and you work for a big network and the network likes you to lie, you know, what ends up happening is you get promoted. But if you lie uh, as an independent journalist, you're pretty much toast. So this is from a guy named Igor Chudov, and it's dated September 23rd, 2023, and will be in the show notes. And it is Pfizer's RSV vaccine math. Kill 4,000 newborns to save 300 from RSV. I repeat that. Kill 4,000 newborns to save 300 from RSV. Does that sound like a good deal, Liz? No, no. But where did those numbers come from? Well, let's find out. Okay. Shall we? Okay. Respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, is a widely circulating respiratory virus that causes colds. The history of RSV vaccines has been marked by 60 years of failure. Encouraged by the COVID-given ability of pharmaceutical companies to sell untested vaccines targeting pregnant women, both GlaxoSmithKline and Pfizer sent out to create a new perfusion-stabilized antigen RSV vaccine, not mRNA-based though, for expectant mothers. Meryl Nass, who is somebody, by the way, I've wanted to salute for a long time. She's a uh, doctor from Maine who has been basically uh, canceled and having her license threatened or taken away by the Maine Medical Board only for speaking truth about the COVID scenario. Um, she explains that the stabilized antigen was developed by the NIAID, which is a division of the uh, NIH, which is where it, the NIAID, as I think, where Anthony Fauci was the head of it, and given to both Pfizer and GSK. So our government developed this 
this antigen that's used in this vaccine. And then they gave it to pharmaceutical companies who are going to make billions of dollars from it. Right. So, um, so there's a, a slide here that says maternal RSV vaccine further analysis is, ur is urged on preterm births. This is an article from the British Medical Journal published in May of this year. And they found that there's a safety signal in similar respiratory syncytial virus vaccine that has led to trials being stopped and prompted calls for a cautious approach to using the vaccine in pregnant women. Pfizer published the results of an interim analysis of its phase three trial in April of 2023, so that would be a month earlier, saying that the vaccine was effective against medically attended severe RSV in children and that no safety concerns were identified. No safety concerns were identified. I'm gonna emphasize that. In a document submitted to the FDA, GlaxoSmithKline data showed 238 preterm bursts out of 3,496 in the vaccine arm, or 6.8%, and 86 out of 1,739 in the placebo arm, or 4.9%. So that is a 1.9% increase. Remember that number, 1.9% increase, um, which actually is a 27.9% overall increase in risk of preterm labor, because what you do is you subtract the two percentages and you take the, the result and, and divide it by the larger percentage and it gives you 1.9 over 6.8 is a 27.9% increase in the rate of preterm birth. This is using relative risk, which is what they always do when they're trying to make you want, get you to do something. So let's use the same thing against them. It's a 27.9, that's, that's almost a 30% increase in preterm birth in this study by GlaxoSmithKline, right? Um, as a company long established in the field of vaccine, GlaxoSmithKline decided to pull out, excuse me, to pull its product due to safety concerns. So they actually found these numbers and they decided we're not gonna make this vaccine. Pfizer, however, refused to answer safety questions or explain why its vaccine is so different and is to have a better safety profile compared to uh, GlaxoSmithKline's. Pfizer did not respond when asked about a possible increase in preterm births associated with the vaccine in its two trials. Um, but they did tell the British Medical Journal that, quote, no imbalance of neonatal deaths was observed in its phase three trial. Okay. Well, that's a non-responsive response. They're asking about preterm labor and, and their response is about neonatal death. So again, it's kind of like, don't look over here, look over there, pay no attention to the words coming out of my mouth because they don't mean anything. And I'm just trying to obfuscate. That's what they're doing. There's All nothing right? to see here. Move on. <laughs> That's correct. Well, here's something really shocked. You're going to be shocked by this one. Yes. And by shocked, I mean not shocked. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Both the FDA and the CDC decided to ignore the safety signal of increased preterm births. And the CDC now recommends it to all pregnant women. Oh, my God. Okay. So he goes on, uh, Mr. Chudoff goes on and he says, what would happen if the RSV vaccine was given to all pregnant women in the United States? Would it prevent deaths or cause more deaths? So he says, let's gather some numbers. All of these numbers coming from the CDC itself. In 2021, there were 3,664,290 new births in the United States. That means that and an estimated 58,000 to 80,000 children under five years of age 
mostly infants, are hospitalized annually nationwide due to RSV infections. And, and what I my research found is of those 58 to 80,000, about 45% of them were in the first year of life. Now, the vaccine is supposed to be given to um, pregnant women, according to ACOG, to prevent babies in the first six months of life from getting sick. So, in other words, you know, they think that they're going to prevent these hospitalizations by giving this vaccine, right? That's the theory. All the authors' calculations, oh, and annually, there's annually 100 to 300 children younger than age five die due to RSV. Say that again. Annually, between 100 to 300 children younger than age five die due to RSV. Globally or in the States? It's the United States. We're talking about the United okay. States numbers. So 100 to 300 children under age five, but how many of those are under six months? So the question is, it's a smaller, it's a much smaller number. But mm-hmm. let's just let's just use their numbers for the calculations is what he's going to do. And he says, Mr. Trudeau's calculations below will give the maximum benefit of the doubt to the numbers supplied by the CDC. In other words, he'll err on the side of giving the benefit of the doubt to the CDC. Like when I do my my unnecessary C-section argument and the World Health Organization says it's supposed to be 10 to 15%, I pick the 15% number to give the World Health Organization the benefit of the doubt. Or if I talk about the risk of uterine rupture, it's somewhere between one in 200 and one in 333. And I always use the larger number to give the benefit of the doubt to the, to the worst case scenario. So that's what he's going to do here, which I think is a very fair thing to do because you're you're refuting what they're doing. You want to give them the best benefit of the doubt, and then you're still going to come out with terrible numbers. Let's see what happens. So an increase in preterm birth of 2% would lead to 3,664,292 times 0.02 or 73,285 additional preterm births. This is assuming we're giving this to all pregnant women, which is what ACOG wants you to do. Okay. In a vaccine that hasn't been tested for safety, in a vaccine that's been known to cause problems, so much so that one of the pharmaceutical companies pulled it off the market, which is a big deal for a pharmaceutical company to do that. Yeah, (laughs) yes it is. Many preterm births are dangerous and lead to greater infant mortality. And we know that's to be true. So in a GlaxoSmithKline's study where we have data on it, there were 13 neonatal deaths in the vaccine arm and three in the placebo arm. All right. But since the placebo arm only had half as many people, you could say that there were six. That would make it 13 to six or a twofold increase in neonatal death based on women who got the vaccine versus who didn't get the vaccine. So if how many RSV hospitalizations of infants could be prevented by Pfizer's vaccine at the most, it would be 57% of the total hospitalizations of kids under five, or between you prevent, if there were 50 to 80,000, then you're preventing 33,000 to 45,000 hospitalizations by giving the vaccine. And that's the kids under five. Again, what's the what's the ratio in, in the first six months? We don't have those numbers. Mm-hmm. ACOG says you should take this to prevent this in the th- first six months without numbers to tell you what's the risk in the first six months. Because after that time, by six months, a baby starts getting its own, it can get its own vaccine. doesn't need to give it to a pregnant woman that's a fetus. It's still developing in the uterus. Right. So in other words, Pfizer's RSV vaccine would cause more premature births 
73,000, as we said earlier, then it would prevent RSV hospitalizations, which would be as a maximum of 45,000 hospitalizations. So it might prevent 45,000 hospitalizations in kids under five, but it's going to cause 73,000 babies to be born prematurely. Mm. And those babies are all hospitalized. Yeah, and a lot of those um, preterm babies, not just hospitalization, but they also a lot of times have long-term health consequences. Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where I'm going. Um, so they, they, everyone, they all agree that death from RSV is rare. I mean, if millions of children get it every year, millions of people get it every year, and there's 100 to 300 deaths under five, it's not that common. So... Of 100 to 300 children under five dying of, dying of RSV, which comes from the CDC. So we must weigh the deaths caused by premature births versus at most 300 lives saved by the Pfizer vaccine. If it saved every one of those kids under age five, it would save 300 lives per year. Okay. But how many infant deaths could be caused by the Pfizer vaccine? Well, consider that infants of vaccinated mothers in the GlaxoSmithKline trial which was significantly powered to see some infant deaths, died at a greater rate, 13 to six, as I said before, or two times greater rate compared to the placebo infants. So Pfizer's RSV vaccine could theoretically, if it's the same vaccine, which it probably is, would, would double the infant death rate. The US sees about 20,000 infant deaths annually. The above assumption means that in addition to 20,000 infants who die yearly for various reasons, an additional 20% or 4,000 would die due to Pfizer's RSV vaccine. So 4,000 infants would die from Pfizer's vaccine to save more fewer than 300 infants from RSV. And where does the 20% come from? It comes from the 20%, I think the 20% increase that I told you about earlier, going from like six point something to four point something. Okay. It, Though it's a small increase percentage-wise, it's a 20% increase in, in the problem. So that's where they come up with that number. You can you can confuse people with statistics, and you can you and my mind is pretty clear on statistics. I have a absent-minded brain for a lot of other things, but I have a really interesting brain for math. And even though as I get older, I can't remember where my glasses are, I can still <coughs> look at <coughs> excuse me. Excuse me. <coughs> I can still find a, uh, a math problem that I, that I can figure out pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So um, how would you approve a barely tested vaccine whose almost identical withdrawn counterpart caused a two to one ratio of infant deaths in a clinical trial? How can saving at most 300 lives justify endangering 4,000 or more lives? And how can ACOG, this is my addition, how can ACOG agree to support universal use? That's my point. Well, thank you for pointing that out to us. So we have a new sponsor, Bliss. Dr. Lindsay has been our friend for a really long time. She's been a birth colleague. And her company, BirthFit, is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum. Isn't that awesome? Like any phase of the journey you can use their programs. They even have a B community where you can go to if you're trying to conceive or if you know you want to in the next one to three years, which is awesome. They have a lying in program, which is in the first you know, beginning of postpartum. 
like what they say is even a day after you can start to get into this. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focus on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum period. They use breathing exercises, visualization, belly massages. So cool. And then they have an extended program called Postpartum Program. It's a 12-week program focused on building a base level of general physical fitness with simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. And all of the work that they do um, requires no or minimal equipment. Um, So you can do it right out of your home. Um, And then of course, they have the prenatal program. They have a a basic 30-day program where no equipment is necessary. I guess you can kind of test out and see if you like their their vibe. And then they have a more extensive program, the prenatal training program, which is a full-term strength and conditioning program. Um, I mean, wow. Yeah. I've I've known Lindsay for a really long time. She was a chiropractor in LA before, before they fled and moved to Texas. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, we, we support them wholeheartedly because this kind of a program is great for our, our clients and most of our listeners. Um, So you go to birthfit.com. That's B I R T H F I T.com. Use the code INSTINCTS1, all caps, INSTINCTS1, with the number, not the not one, but the number, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program, or use code INSTINCTS2 to get a discount on the basic postpartum program. All right? So we love BirthFit. Uh, it's OB and midwife approved. That's right. And right. please support them. And congratulations on your pregnancy, Lindsay. Thanks for joining the team. Welcome to the Birthing Instincts neighborhood. So just another nail in the coffin of the value of ACOG. And, you know, one of the things on the ACOG community uh, uh, chat line this past week was how some of the doctors of ACOG are really upset about how they're being blamed and vilified for problems going on in the healthcare world. Hmm. And it's like, do you guys watch the news? <laughs> do you guys, do you guys, read the statistics do you read the data and you're worried about your reputation look what you're yeah. doing what you've done yeah. destroyed any confidence that people could have in doctors and you wonder why what's that called i mean it's more than just cognitive dissonance it's like it's 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 more than being obtuse it's just it's like no self-awareness for that i, I don't know what it is but it drives me <laughs> We're, we're dumbfounded. Yeah, it, it, Bliss, it's it's so funny. They, they wonder why that their reputation is being destroyed. I'm uh, a little happy about that. Not, not, not an evil person, and I don't wish any individual any, like, ill will. But I would like to see people waking up and deciding that this is, this system is definitely not serving us. Does it mean that obstetrics can't be a beautiful adjunct to um, women having deliveries in the community and, um, you know, uh, physiologic birth being the norm. But um, because, you know, we appreciate the abilities that that they can do for preterm babies and for women who have placenta previa or accreta or, you know, there's so many other things that thank goodness we have these medical advances but i i would be pretty happy if in my lifetime um the statistics switched and the majority of women 
were having their babies in a physiologic and sacred way. And we utilized OBs for what they're intended to be, which is pregnancy-related surgery. I mean, pregnancy-related illnesses and surgery. Um, You know, let's use them for their specialty, not for what they've never learned in school. Yeah, they've commandeered the... the, uh... Um, the birthing process of women and turned it into this assembly line of medicalized interventions, um, which hasn't done well. All they have to do is look at the data, look at the outcomes, but they don't and they won't. And that's a perfect example of them wondering why they're being vilified is a perfect example of why they don't understand that their model is creating high C-section rates, high induction rates, low satisfaction rates. The best hospital in the country has a 44% breastfeeding rate after two days. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. So, we're not uh, impressed. Let's no, say we're not impressed. We're not impressed. And we have chronic chronic illnesses in, in uh, children that's on the rise. They're not contributing to the, that welfare. And we have... Uh, significant amounts of postpartum blues and depression and, and other things that, that are not being attended to. And yet the, the group of people that actually attend to those best, which are well-trained midwives, um, are, 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 are wrongly being vilified. And they're happy with that. They're okay with that. The same doctors that can't imagine how they could be vilified would be quickly vilify a home birth midwife. Yeah. And they know nothing about us. Okay. Well, here's another. Oh, go ahead. You first. I was going to say, so before we jump into our topic, I thought you might appreciate some um, stupidity uh, in the midwifery world. We're always kind of talking about the dumb stuff that comes um, from the other organizations. Um, But the medical model, the medical model doesn't have a monopoly on stupidity. (laughs) No. So I had to. I had to re-register um, as, a, well, I didn't have to. I chose to re-register for now as a um, CPM with NARM, which is our national certification. And um, every couple of years, I have to do a BLS, basic life support course, hands-on. And um, and this year, they're requiring that we have cultural competence, which I did in school. So um I told them that I did it in school and um, sent off my BLS thing and it got, it gets rejected. There's no number to contact any human being. It's all certified online through an app. Um, And the reason that my, my NRP, I mean, my BLS was denied was because it didn't come from the AHA, the ARC, or the ASH. Those are the only three. Yeah. What are those? What are those? Well, I know that <laughs> AHA is the American Heart Association. Um, I would say that ARC has something to do with cardiology, right? Because it's heart stuff. Um, and I don't know what the ASHI is. I'd have to look it up. But so um, the woman who did my thing is certified under the EC. SI, which is Emergency Care and Safety Institute, or the AAOS, which is the American College of Emergency Physicians. 
You've got me laughing. So it's a, it's like a legitimate organization that has like its little emblem. It's not like some Joe Schmo on the corner was giving me like advice on CPR, but they, if you don't go through these three organizations, you get rejected. Is that ridiculous or what? It is ridiculous, but clearly there's an alliance between these organizations and NARM. And then I can guarantee you that alliance includes some sort of perk for somebody that works at NARM. And that's all I'll say. Hmm. Because, yeah, the, there's there's reasons why these, there's always reasons, and it always leads to what? Money. He's, he's, lip, he's lipping things I want, to me. I wanted you to give the answer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there there has to be a reason why that that only that you know only this brand works and that brand is no good it's just well it's like a stamp of approval you're like okay this one's valid and this one's not but i'm like come on you guys so i have to fight that so that i don't have to take another bls on a day off but anyways i thought you'd appreciate that that stupidity is everywhere Well, but stupidity has infiltrated every organization that has at least three or four letters in it mm-hmm. so um it's true. I mean, NARM is not immune from the same stupidity that ACOG has or that the FDA has or the CDC has or the NIH has or the, you know, uh, AARP has or whatever. The, any of these acronym disasters out there, um, they're, they're all, you know, they're all influenced by money and power mm-hmm. controlling what you do. And how you do it, despite the fact that you're highly trained and despite the fact that you know what you're doing, and you took a course. And yeah, I, I don't even know what to say about that. But I but I, I'm going to I'm not trying to one up your dumbness. But <laughs> yeah. I, here's a hospital thing that, that I was talking to um, Katie. She's got twins and she lives in Al, uh, Alabama, which has got a lot of uh, maternity care desert areas in it. And she's got no options in Alabama of having twins out of the hospital. And if she were to go to the hospital, she would likely um, go through that whole thing where she's got to be induced and she has to have an epidural and she has to be in lithotomy and she has to be in the OR and she can't eat and all those sorts of things. She doesn't want that. Right. Right. But we were just chatting about that. And she she made me laugh because she told me this thing in Birmingham, Alabama, there's a hospital called Grandview Hospital. And she said, you should call them out. So I'm calling out Grandview Hospital. Because you know what Grandview Hospital does? Hmm. They offer you a steak dinner when you schedule your cesarean. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like on another day or they bring it up to your No, I think it's I think it's another room. another day, I think. A little coupon to go and they get give, a steak dinner. That's correct. Interesting. Kind of like giving donuts for the COVID shot. Yeah, or I was thinking of uh, the former mayor of New York, uh, Bozo guy. I can't remember his name. Glad I can't remember his name. Anyways, he's sitting there munching on French fries, telling people that, hmm, these French fries are really delicious. If you get your COVID shot, you get free fries. This is, this is, this. I don't know how these people look in the mirror in the morning or look at their spouse or look at their children and say, aren't you proud of daddy? It's like, so bizarre. So bizarre. All right. You ready so to get to our topic? Hospital? Yeah. 
I wonder if you book your C-section, you get your coupon and then you can decline your C-section and then you get a steak dinner without getting a C-section. That would be what I'd like to do. <laughs> I bet you would. Yeah, Stu does know. like steaks, by the way, you guys. All right, let's take a quick break. Then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about due dates, estimated date of confinement, estimated due date. Uh, I don't know what else. There's all different kinds of terms for that. So we'll uh, we'll be right estimated, back. Estimated date of delivery. We'll be right back. Element's a tasty electrolyte drink. They've been sponsoring us for a while with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of salt and, and with no sugar, as you like to say, none of the... BS, just like us. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. It's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, paleo diet, but not for our pregnant patients who shouldn't be on any of those, <laughs> okay? Uh, but it's good for pregnant women. It's good for postpartum women. It's good for uh, birth workers. It's good for people who are outside working out. Summer's coming on. It's going to be hot and sweaty. Yeah, and it's grapefruit season. I just got my box. Yeah, well, not only is it grapefruit season, but but they also comes in a bunch of other flavors: yeah. watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw. Your favorite? Mango chili, lemon, and chocolate raspberry. Lemon course. habanero. Lemon habanero. What is a habanero anyway? It's a it's a spicy chili. Okay. Yeah. There you go. You know, the other day I was at a very long birth, and we went to get some electrolytes for the mom to see if we could help her with some of the things that she was dealing with. And we, every one of the birth workers that was there, had some too. We're like, we all need it. Let's all have some element. Yeah, and, it, com and it comes in a little packet so that you you don't have any waste. Right. Like Great. throwing bottles away and stuff like that. You can just use it in your reusable container. We love that. That sort of thing. So we love that. So you go to Drink Element. That's Drink L M N T dot com backslash birthing instincts and you get a free sample pack with any order great thanks element thank you mm, all right is, mm, those fries are really tasty mm. all right we're back right i'm going to get my code shot later today so i can have some of those fries don't <laughs> even talk about that so it is funny that you mentioned that because one of the things that i wanted to do um so the calculation of the expected date of delivery, EDD, the expected date of birth, which I don't think I've ever heard before. This is from Anne Fry in Holistic Midwifery, Volume 1. Um, so that would be EDB. The, have you heard of that one before? Yeah. E yeah. No, I haven't heard of EDB, but have you heard of EDC? Yes. I think that one's hilarious. If you guys haven't heard of this, EDC is the old term meaning expected date of confinement. Uh, so that says a lot right there. Yeah. I mean, I could look up the definition of confinement, but it would be, it, it sort of defines the medical profession back then who came up with this term. Yeah. So I thought I would love for you to start and talk about how in the, in the normal model, how we decide what the quote unquote due date is. Okay, well, I, I, I want to read this first, and then I will address how the medical model looks at due dates. Okay, um, I love how you told me to 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 lead it, and then you're like, "But I'm going to do this anyway." Well, no, uh, yeah. Well, I just want to read this because I think it <laughs> frames everything. It's I okay. wrote this. This is another example of the questionable origins of a medical term, mm -hmm. leading to wide arcing acceptance without scrutiny. As to why we did it that way. Exactly. That has led to grave consequences and interventions. And now, because it's just there, 
it meets with that famous quote from Thomas Paine that I use a lot, which is the long habit of not thinking something wrong gives it the superficial appearance of being right. And this is a this is something that was invented. Um, anyway, it was in, I don't remember who invented it. Maybe you do where it came up from. But in the medical model, the way we used to look at it was that all women had 28 day cycles. Right. Now, in ancient times, in ancient times, that was probably much more true because women were in line with the lunar cycles and the lunar cycle is about 28 days. 29. Yeah. Is it 29? Yeah. In, in Anne Fry's book, I loved this. She, cause she's, I told you guys, she like, her books are so thick. She goes like down every possible scenario, which is kind of fun. So lunar reckoning is what she calls it. For tens of thousands of years, women calculated their menstrual cycles by following the phases of the moon. When your moon, which is why sometimes you'll hear women referring to it as as their moon cycle. Um, When your moon disappears, you are pregnant. So a lunar cycle is just over 29 days, 29 days, 12 hours, 44 minutes and three seconds, she says. (laughs) However, however, Women count in terms of whole days. This gives a gestational period of 290 days from the last menstrual period or 10 lunar months. So that's how women used to be able to estimate when they were going to have their baby after 10 moons. Kind of cool. So now the the way that doctors do it is they go uh, essentially 280 days from the first day of your last menstrual period. All right. That's what's that's what we do. And we use this little thing called a wheel (laughs) to figure that out, because all doctors know that all women have 28 day cycles and all women ovulate on day 14. That's right. That's a given in the medical model. And of course, we know that that's bogus and has almost no bearing in fact. Um, And and we know that from IVF studies, the gestational Timing is about 266 days, but there's a wide variation. It's a very much of a bell-shaped curve. Um, an easy way to figure it out, if, if you take your last menstrual period, you subtract three months and add seven days, that's a way to get your last your, your estimated due date, which we're going to hopefully debunk the whole idea of an estimated due date um, before this conversation is over, Bliss. I hope that that's where we're heading. Which the, the math that you just said, so three months from your last menstrual period and add seven days is the Nagel's rule. Okay. So that's called Nagel's rule. Uh huh. Do, do we know who Nagel was? So in 1709, of course, Anne Fry knows, uh, Herman Borov, professor of medicine at the university of Leiden in England proposed a formula for calculating the date of birth. This was later quoted by Dr. Franz Nagel and has since been attributed to him and referred to as the Nagel's rule. Well, he stole it. <laughs> yeah, he quoted somebody else. Yeah. Uh-huh. He stole it. That happens. Plagiarized, plagiarized it. That happens often. Let's just say that. Uh, okay. So that's what we do. So we usually take out a wheel. We ask a person their last first day of their last menstrual period, not the last day, but the first day of your last menstrual period, you put it in the wheel, it calculates it out, and you're given a, a, a due date. And that's... But- Yes. But why? 
why do we do it from the first day of the LMP, the last menstrual cycle? Because we don't trust women to know when they ovulated and we don't trust women to know when they've had sex. <laughs> we, Is that we why? Have an, we have an objective date because women generally know the day they started their period. And that's yeah. something you can see because you have blood and you can see it. Whereas right. the date you ovulate, you you know, some women are very aware of their bodies and they can feel ovulation or they can, or they do uh, basal body temperature charting or fertility awareness method with their mucus. And they, they're much more into it. But again, that's too many variables for the medical model, which needs to have an algorithm. It needs to have a one size fits all model because they don't want to have to individualize their care. Yeah. And they don't consider the consequences of assigning a person incorrect due date because they have no intention of paying to that, uh, paying attention to that due date anyway. Right. They're going to, they're going to find a way to intervene long before that due date. So it's, it's not that important. And it was never, when I first started in practice, it was automated. It was never that important. We assigned the due date. We picked it, not the mother. We picked it. We told them what their due date was. Which is <laughs> so wild. And I think a lot of times when I'm like, because when I go through due dates because of the law, I I would not do any of this nonsense if it wasn't for the state. Um, but we go through and we look at when was their last menstrual period? Do they know when they uh, ovulated? Do they know when they had sex? And we calculate the dates from all of these different scenarios to be able to pick the longest possible scenario so that we're not um, being bullied by the state to have a baby. Um, so, and you're right. A lot more women are, um, you know, learning more about their cycles and learning more about their bodies. And I've talked about this before. There's a great book called the fifth vital sign, which is all about how, um, our cycles and our mucus and our fertility and our ovulation are all part of what also reflects just like a blood pressure or a temperature, how our body is functioning. So, um, and there's, there's variability, right? Like I always say, you know, the fruit doesn't fall off the tree at all the same time, doesn't ripen and fall down all at the same time. So our babies are very similar. Our bodies are similar. It's an organic process. So you don't look at a, a, a flower on your tree and then start to calculate when it's going to, when it's going to be ripe and then pull it off before it's ripe. You, you wait for that process to happen. Yeah. That's a really good analogy. Like I, I, I was outside yesterday picking tomatoes mm -hmm. and Someone on the tomato, same tomato plant, you got some that are bright orange, mm -hmm. some that are yellowish orange, and some that are green still. And they all they all like flowered at the same time. They all pollinated at the same time, more or less. Mm -hmm. um, and yet some are riper than others quicker. So that's that's a great analogy. Yeah. Um so there's also some other variables in there. Um uh, from an article again, I'll post on the not an article, but a reference I'll post on the show notes from perinatology.com is uh, about determining the date of conception. Because the human egg is capable of fertilization for only 12 to 24 hours after ovulation, we believe, the date of ovulation may be taken as beginning the date of, uh, being the date of conception. However, ultrasound determination of the date of ovulation has the same imprecision as does ultrasound estimate of the gestational age, and therefore a precise date of conception cannot usually be determined as, we, as it can with in vitro fertilization when you know actually exactly when it happened. Yeah. In addition, although a woman is more 
most likely to become pregnant if she has sex on the day of ovulation. Conception may also occur from live sperm still in a reproductive tract on the day of ovulation if she had sex for up to five days before ovulation. So a lot of women will say, well, I only had sex on Tuesday, the such and such a date. And so they think that that's when they got pregnant. But you could have gotten pregnant on Saturday following. Mm-hmm. All it takes is for live sperm to be sitting around waiting in the fallopian tube. Yeah. Which is where fertilization takes place. Right. So um, it's the, the, we're adding several days of imprecision just in that part alone. Right. Then And then, of course, cycle links. We, I think you might have mentioned this, but cycle links vary tremendously. Some women have a 28-day cycle. Some women have a 29-day cycle, 12-hour, 44-minute, three-second cycle. And and some women may have a 30-day, a 32-day, a 34-day. Some women ovulate irregularly. They may go three months without ovulating. So there's no way to predict when they got pregnant, when suddenly they find out that they have what's called oligomenorrhea, which is that they're late on their period, which has been their normal thing. Maybe they got mild polycystic ovarian syndrome or something, and they don't ovulate regularly. And... Then they find out, oh, you know, suddenly their breasts are tender and they're nauseous. They find out they're pregnant, but they have no idea yeah, how far pregnant they are. Right. And then so there, what, there are ways of determining that, obviously, if, if a woman doesn't know for different reasons, whether she was breastfeeding or she doesn't have her cycle or, you know, those things. Um, there are ways of us to be able to figure out without the period, um, probably estimate around uh where they are in well it their used gestation. to be that and you guys have a great skill that doctors have lost the ability to do and that's to size the uterus right um, i was taught you know about different sizes of the uterus and we actually even had in medical school we had women volunteer um who got paid to be models who would we'd come in for a day and we as medical students got to do pelvic exams on them. Mm-hmm. And they, some of them would be, you know, eight weeks pregnant. Some would be 16 weeks pregnant. Some would be 22 weeks pregnant. Some would have a fibroid no pregnancy. And we would have to try to figure out, you know, an estimate based on the size either. So we did have some training in that. I don't know that that still happens because the, the, the use of vaginal exam, uh, use of hands has been diminished in medical schools and residencies where the use of in technology mm-hmm. has increased greatly. Mm-hmm. So if it's okay with you, um, I just want to talk a little bit about the technology about. Yes. But before you move on, I want to okay. just explain to people who don't know what you meant by the midwifery skills that we have. Um, we use, you know, before this is one of the first things I talk about to a woman in her first visit is before we're pregnant, our uterus could fit in the palm of our hand and is tucked behind our pubic bone. And then as the baby grows, obviously the uterus grows as well to be able to support the growth of the baby. Um, So for an average woman from the top of their pubic bone to their belly button is about 20 centimeters, not all the time, but most of the time it's pretty accurate. So, um, we know as we're palpating the fundus, so that's the top of the uterus, um, we can guesstimate, especially as you get to around the halfway mark of the pregnancy, um, that it would be around the 20 week or the belly button, and then it continues to grow. And we use a measuring tape to be able to 
without ultrasounds to be able to know that the baby is continuing to grow on their own growth curve. Um, and it's pretty cool that when you measure with a measuring tape, the centimeters that are present are usually equated to how many weeks she is pregnant. Now, obviously organic, right? It's not all the time exact, but for most women, it really does turn out. So I wanted to kind of say that before you moved on. Okay. Okay. Um, Technology. Yeah. Well, um, since technology is used, whether it's necessary or not, in almost every obstetrical practice that exists, um, and we've talked about ultrasound before and the fact that it's the harms and risks are unknown, uh, but they're likely to be some. And so you want to limit them to as few as possible. But there's very few women that go into an obstetrical practice once they come in with a positive pregnancy test that are beyond six weeks that the doctor doesn't offer them an ultrasound or even tell them that they need an ultrasound as opposed to offering them an ultrasound. And so you're going to get an ultrasound somewhere between six and 12 weeks at your first prenatal visit, generally speaking. So, and, and if you come in later than that, then you're going to have even more error, but there is an error in the accuracy of ultrasound in, in predicting um, your gestational age. And we should know that because a lot of women have an assigned due date based on a ultrasound at 12 weeks or an ultrasound at 18 weeks. And they say, well, my due date, oh, or then, or then they had an ultrasound at six weeks and it showed the due date was such and such. And then they had an ultrasound at 24 weeks and the, it shows the due date is now a week sooner. Mm-hmm. And the doctor will change the due date, which is insanity, stupidity. Right. Right. Because the most accurate ultrasound is the earliest ultrasound because the error of a scan. So let's talk a little bit about that. Okay. Ultrasound uses the size of the fetus to determine the gestational age. Um, the accuracy of the ultrasound estimate of the gestational age varies according to the gestational age. I think I just said that. Mm-hmm. Ultrasound measurements of the embryo or fetus in the first trimester up to and including 13 weeks and six days is the most accurate method to establish or confirm gestational age. Oh, I thought it was under 10 weeks. Well, I'm just reading what this perinatology thing is talking about. Okay. But it is. I, I think I, I think under, under 10 weeks or eight weeks is much more accurate. The more the farther along you go, the more wider range that you have. Mm-hmm. But again, they're saying the most accurate method to confirm gestational age is ultrasound. And I, so it's like, not necessarily. Sometimes a woman knows exactly when she conceived and sometimes exactly yeah (laughs) (laughs) and it's like i know when i had sex so why would an ultrasound be more accurate than than that because because if you had sex then the error of your pregnancy can't be more than four or five days Mm -hmm. and the most accurate ultrasound even at seven or eight weeks has an error of four or five days so it's like you know listening to the woman makes a lot of sense, but doctors consider that to be subjective evidence. And doctors don't like subjective evidence. Doctors like what, Bliss? What do they like? Objective? Objective evidence. Yes. (laughs) So what's objective evidence? No, it's not the level of your HCG because HCG has a huge wide variation. So you can't tell how far someone is by drawing an HCG level. You can tell whether they've got a pregnancy that's progressing normally early on by seeing a doubling of that every couple of days and that sort of thing. But you could have a normal pregnancy at six weeks that has a HCG level of 10,000 and another one that has HCG level of 40,000. 
Right. Right. So it's not, that's completely um, unreliable. I, I want to read this little chart that's from a midwife's handbook and see what you think about it. It's, it's in regards to what you're saying. So they're saying yeah, okay. ultrasonic gestational age estimation and accuracy. So gestational sac diameter is what they use to measure in the very beginning of a pregnancy. So that's performed from between 4.5 to 5.5 weeks. And the accuracy is plus or minus five days. I would from, say that actually, I would say actually it's a little more accurate than that, but I understand that. I would say plus or minus three to four days. That's what I've okay. always been taught. Okay. And that's the and that's the most accurate thing you can find uh, because everything else gets worse. But go ahead. Okay. Well, actually in this, that's why I'm saying this. So, and then they say the embryonic crown rump length is what they're measuring. And that's between six weeks and 12 weeks. And that they're saying is the most accurate, which is plus or minus three days. So they're saying if it's under six weeks, that the it's not as accurate than between six and 12, when you can actually measure the embryonic crown rump length. Well, that's interesting because if you do an ultrasound and only see a sac and there's no fetus there, you know, it has to be before four and a half to five weeks. So yeah, I'm not sure how one, can, how, how one can be more accurate than that, that more accurate than the other. Hmm. Okay. And the then way, they go, and then they go on that, to, yeah. Before you go on, you, the range you just gave there six to 12 weeks. Uh-huh. There's a significant difference between a scan at six weeks accuracy and a scan at 12 weeks accuracy. So I'm not mm -hmm. sure why they're lumping that all in there at three, in three to four days, because at six to seven or eight weeks, it's plus or minus three to four days by nine or 10 weeks. You're, you're, you're up five to six days or even seven days. Okay. By 12 weeks, yeah. you've got a five to seven day window. Right. Okay. Okay. This is um data from 1995. So maybe that's why. Maybe, it, no, maybe I, think, it's I don't know that it's changed accurate. dramatically. I, again, it just depends on your source. Uh, I, I, but even so, plus or minus three to four days or five days is 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 a big deal. If you tell somebody that they're due on April first and they're really due on April fifth, is it a big deal? <laughs> is it, it is really medical, a big deal? No, not in our world, but in the medical model, it's a big deal because if they want to deliver you at thirty nine weeks, sure, thirty eight weeks in two days. Sure. Yeah. 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 If they um, want you to go past 40 weeks, you may actually be 40 weeks in five days. Oh my God. Oh my God. So um, then it goes to the measurement that would be next would be the biparietal diameter BPD femur length um, performed between 15 and 22 weeks accuracy plus or minus 10 days. That's that right. Yeah. And then, or cerebral transverse diameter performed at 22 weeks or more accuracy plus or minus 14 to 20 days. Yep. So anyways, I thought that was kind of interesting, although we have right. some, some uh, conflicting evidence. And by, the, and by, the time you, and by the time you get to the third trimester, mm -hmm. the error of a scan is plus or minus two and a half to three weeks. Yeah. So... <laughs> When you see a, a, a baby that comes in that has a, 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 a early ultrasound or just accurate dating based on mom's history and the baby is, they do, a, they do an unnecessary scan at 32 weeks or maybe it's necessary because your fundal height isn't growing and the baby's measuring two weeks behind mm -hmm. and the error of the scan is three weeks. 
Right. Okay. That is in the realm, <laughs> that is in the realm of, of the error of the scan. And yet they'll make a big, they'll talk, they'll start talking about growth restriction. Right. Right. Which is not scientific. You cannot do that. Yeah. Unless there are other signs that there's other problems like oligohydramios or, you know, some other sign. But if it's within the error of the scan, that's those two little bars, you know, we're looking at a graph. It'll have dots on it. And then it'll have, that's the mean. And then it'll have little bars, which is the, the range. Mm -hmm. And as long as anything's in that range, it's still considered normal. normal. The P value is, is not statistically significant. So you cannot use that to change someone's dates. Yet it happens all the time. We're going to talk a little bit about our sponsor needed. We love them. They have an amazing company. And you know what, you guys, your prenatal nutrition isn't cutting it. So they redesigned the prenatal vitamin for you to be optimally nourished. They came out with a new product. I mean, I just feel like every time I turn around, they've got a new amazing product. And this one is an immune support. It's easy to take delicious elderberry powder to support optimal immune health for the whole family. You know, I was hiking the other day and I saw an elderberry bush. You recognized it? Of course not. <laughs> no. Really impressed. No, but the midwife I was with recognized it right away. 70% um, of the immune system resides in the gut. So comprehensive support is needed. Most immune support products aren't designed for all ages and stages. Their immune support is safe and effective for the whole family, kids, pregnant, and nursing moms included. So that is perfect for our followers. Yeah, so go to their website at uh, thisisneeded.com and look through their products. I mean, not only do they have a prenatal vitamin, uh, which we recommend, but they have sleep and relaxation support, stress support, hydration support, collagen, a pre and probiotic, which I think is a good thing um, yeah. for a lot of us to be taking, yeah. especially if you have immune issues or if you uh, had recently taken antibiotics or something like that. They have a whole thing for men, so you can men can look at that at their website as well. So again, we love their we love their sponsor. And what makes them different is optimal nutrient forms, dosages that help you thrive, easy to take at all stages of pregnancy. They were formulated with practitioners, and they're recommended by over three thousand women health experts, just like us. And I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I stole your. You stole it. No. Okay. So go to thisisneeded.com. Just spell it out and use the code birthing instincts to get 20% off your first order. Thisisneeded.com. I think you get 20% off every order, but just, mm -hmm. just uh, use the code word birthing instincts at thisisneeded.com. Thanks, needed. Thank you. Oh. Yes. Yes. And, I, you know, I think this is some uh, an analogy that. I heard you say when I was working in the office with you all the time, um, the reason why we find that it's more accurate, whether we're going to say under 12 weeks or under 10 weeks is because it's kind of like the acorn, right? It's all about the same size, but then beyond that, then genetics starts to come into play. So prior to that, the embryology, they're all about the same as we begin. And then beyond that, you know, if we have small parents or tall parents or, you know, all of that starts to apply. So looking at that range, like you were saying, as normal rather than freaking out if your baby's not at the 50th percentile, right? Be which is yeah, the, the saying was The saying that was that, you know, all acorns are the same size, but not, but all oak trees are not the same size. Right. Right. And, and 
this this little article adds to that. It says because of the risk of redating a small fetus, or I would say a large fetus for that matter, uh-huh. um, management decisions based on third trimester ultrasonography alone are especially problematic. They need to be guided by careful consideration of the entire clinical picture and may require closer surveillance, including repeat ultrasonography to ensure appropriate interval growth. So if you have a, a baby that's measuring two weeks small or two weeks big at 34 weeks or something like that, the smart thing to tell the patient is, I think that your baby's growing just fine, but because it's off a little bit from what we think it should be off of the mean, we should probably do another ultrasound down the road to see if it's still growing on its own growth curve. Now, okay. here's the thing. If the error of a scan at that point is plus or minus three weeks, how long should you wait to do your next ultrasound? Three weeks. Exactly, or more, three weeks or more. Uh How often will the doctor say, well, I want you to come in next week and measure your baby? Right, right. It's not enough time. It's not enough time. It's within the error of the scan. You could actually measure the baby a week later and get a smaller baby. Because it's when the air is scanned, a different different sonographer gets different measurements. Is the right. baby actually shrinking? <laughs> right. No. So that's why when doctors bring you back for growth scans every week or something in the third trimester, that is not scientific. No, they but it's a good way to greedy. make a lot of money. Yeah, they're either greedy or stupid. <laughs> now if they're checking you for biophysical profile or fluid or mean you know maximum vertical that's a different story but if they're doing measurements each time there's an rvs code for that they can bill more for that we're getting off the topic but but so they should not be doing that plus there's longer exposure you don't need those measurements they're not helpful right okay. ask them to use their hands right ask them to use their hands okay <laughs> so uh all right, so what else is on that part of the, the thing before we move on to uh, ways of getting around this whole thing? No, no, I'm good. I'm good. We are? We, we've, we've covered everything? Okay. I just want to give a shout out um, to, uh, let's see, the Birthful Podcast, mm-hmm. uh, number 209. It's from a few years ago. They had Gail Hart on, mm-hmm. and they did this topic, so people want to get another viewpoint from Gail Hart and her barking dogs um because <laughs> I listened to it the other day and because I wanted to see what we what they covered I wanted to make sure that we were uh going to add something interesting and then also free to birth had an Instagram post recently that they um they talk about only four percent of babies yeah are born on their due date so you have something we put so much emphasis on that is 96 percent wrong <laughs> it seems kind of silly. Well, um, so I did have one more thing I want to add. Yeah. So, um, so Woods method is one of the methods that will be able to include that we have different cycles, that our cycles are not all the same. So the individualization of the woman and her body and what's happening to be able to help decide on the due date. So um, always Carol makes Wood. Most, it always makes so much sense, Bliss, when you say the word individualization of care. This is, yeah, this, is a, right? this is this is a foreign language to the medical model of obstetrics, but it is it's it's the heart blood, lifeblood, excuse me, the lifeblood 
of good care. And the and midwives know this. Yeah. And again, as we said earlier, there are midwives who are and midwife groups that do stupid things. And there are OBs that do great things and everything in between. But in general, everybody knows what we're talking about. In general, midwives rule. <laughs> they rule. <laughs> um, so Carol, um, Carol Wood was a nurse midwife professor at Yale University. Um, and she saw the flaws in the standard method of calculating the due date. So she came up with a method which takes into account individual variations of the menstrual cycle, as well as effects of women having had previous pregnancies. Um, I'm, I'm interested in that, but they did a study, another study called the um, Mendenhoff study, which actually did look at um, 31 uncomplicated first-time pregnancies and 83 multiple multiparous pregnancies. So that's not a ton of people. It's not a huge study, but um, this research under, concluded that, yeah, that the length of pregnancy from the first day of the LMP period for prime primaps was 288 days. And the length of pregnancy from the LMP from multips was 283 days. So five days shorter. And that was assuming a regular cycle. So um, ovulation on 14 days of a 28-day cycle. So um, Wood's method says that first-time mothers with 28-day cycles, it's the LMP plus 12 months minus two months and 14 days, which is interesting. Um, and then minus two, the minus two months and 14 days, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, the LMP for multiples on a 28 day cycle is 12 months minus two months and 18 days for cycles longer than 28 days. You do the EDD plus the actual cycle length minus 28 days equals the estimated due date. And for cycles shorter than 28 days, you do the EDD minus 28 days minus the actual cycle equals <laughs> the EDD. So it is complicated. I thought I was good at math, but that went that went right over my head. <laughs> so it is comp. Well, it's basically just adjusting for the fact that you might have a longer or shorter cycle. So you would take the estimated due date and you would either end those days or subtract those days, depending on if your cycle is longer or shorter. Do you have a link for that that we could put in the show notes? Or is it in the book? Is it in Anne Fry's book? Uh, it's in her book, which I can, oh. we can, we can put yeah, the so page you give number. Me that. I'll put, I'll put that in the show yeah. notes. Yeah. Um, so this is, you know, before midwives used ultrasounds to be able to do this, this is how we figured things out. And we also took into account the measurements. We took into account when the mom started to feel movement, when we could hear a heartbeat. And we put that whole picture together to be able to decide a guesstimate of when her baby might be coming. Like, for example, I've told the story before, but my mom didn't know how far along she was with me. She was a hippie and she just didn't, she just didn't track any of that. She had no idea. So she started to have labor pains because I was her third. So she knew what labor felt like. She went into the hospital and they said, oh no, your baby is only, uh, let's see, I would have been five months along. You can't have your baby yet. I was too, I was too um, little. I was too creamy. Why are you making that face? You know the story. Then my mom was in bed for the whole summer with drinking a bottle of wine a day because that's what they told her to do. Um, uh, but 
we would just guesstimate, right? We would guesstimate when we would think that the baby was coming. And now we have, like you were saying, it's important to know if it's three days <laughs> or not. And that's only because of the medical model. That's not, I want you to, you know, I say this all the time when it comes to birth, there's birth, like an animal delivers, like a mammal delivers, and then there's hospital birth. And all of the things that you have to consider in that medicalized model is not inherently part of you just being pregnant and having a baby. And the due date is the same thing. If we didn't have all of this nonsense, you would just be pregnant and enjoy your pregnancy. And when you started to have contractions, you would have your baby and you wouldn't have all of this fear and worry and pressure. Um, so a lot of midwives will tell people, don't even tell people your due date. And I call it a guest date. What is your guest date? Because like you said, the statistic is so small as to the amount of women who actually deliver on their due date. And there's so much pressure and anxiety around that. So don't even tell people your due date. Just tell them it's a guest month and be ish about it. Don't be specific. Yeah, in a perfect world, that would be the best thing that you could possibly do that you don't, so that you wouldn't put so much emphasis on something that's, like I said, 96% wrong. Right. Um, and, you know, ideally, that's we, at least our population uh, and our fellow travelers can head toward a world that used to exist that way, where, um, you know, when are you, when do you do? Uh, I'm due during a harvest season. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> okay, well. You know, harvest season doesn't occur in one day. Mm -hmm. You harvest things when they're ready and they're ripe. And that's sort of um, uh, would be really nice to go back to that. Would we miss some things with that? Yeah, we might. Um, but, you know, it's a trade-off. It's like the article that I read earlier. Oh, we could maybe say, maybe at the most we could save 300 lives by killing 4,000 preemies. <laughs> right. You know, uh, it, it's a trade-off. Everything's a trade-off. And unfortunately, we are, we're all sub subject to the trade-off that the people in medical model decide are, are you know, has value and the, anything else is then ridiculed and diminished. So the yes. idea that you don't have a due date or don't want a due date would be ridiculed and diminished by a system that has to have a due date because otherwise they'll panic because they don't know what to do with you. Because everything they do is determined by that due date, as opposed to just looking at the woman as an individual and listening to what she says, oh, my baby's moving fine. I find my belly's growing, I'm fine. And um, for the most part, if we did that, we would miss some things, but I think our induction rate, our epidural rate, our, our C-section rate, our NICU admission rate would probably go down. And uh, obviously, I won't know that because no one's going to ever do that study probably in my lifetime. But I think that it would be very valuable for people to consider not focusing on a due date. And even if they're in the medical model, talking to their doctor about that and not say, and saying, you know, my cycles are irregular. You know, I don't want to be uh, pigeonholed into this thing where you say that I have to deliver by such and such a date. I, I refute that, I deny that, I'm not gonna accept that. And uh, I'm going to let my body tell me what to do. And if you want to do some testing and you can convince me that there's a value to it, then I will acquiesce to that. If, you, if this doesn't sit well with you as my physician, then that's fine, let me know now so I can look elsewhere 
and find somebody who does sit well with me because that's my philosophy. And uh, we might be wrong sometimes and we might have some bad outcomes sometimes, but we can't really be doing worse than what's going on with our medicalized birth model at this time. But that's also life, right? I mean, life is, it's life and death. It's a cycle and there aren't any guarantees as soon as you step out of, out of your home for anything. So the, the trying to control all the outcomes is how we're in the predicament that we're in. Um, because like you said, you think that you're saving so many lives, but when you start to really break down the numbers, what are we losing? You know, what are all the things that are happening to, to women as a whole in this time of their life that is stealing so much joy and happiness and satisfaction in just merely being pregnant, you know? It gets back to the thing that I read earlier, where it's, it's essentially the origins of the term uh, or the due date are questionable, and they lead to wide acceptance without scrutiny as to why it's happening. And this long habit of not thinking something wrong permeates the medical model. And, you know, every week, pretty much every week, not every week, but pretty much every week, you and I Bliss, point out something that the medical model does that makes no sense, that isn't evidence-based or, or good evidence-based or scientific or uh, successful in preventing bad outcomes. I mean, it just, everything seems to be getting slowly worse mm-hmm. and we create more of these sorts of things. So we need to do away with this thing called a due date as a definitive endpoint. We just need to do away with it at all. And you said earlier, you know, if people want to know your due date and you, and you have to tell them something, tell them at least two or three weeks after the due date that you sort of been assigned. So if you do August 1st, you tell people do your, you do the end of August. And that way, because everybody's going to, all your family members who love you are going to write down, you know, Emily's due on such and such a date. And then that date comes around and then they're going to start to reflect upon you, um, their fears and anxieties or what their doctor told them. Like, you know, two days past your due date, what is your doctor doing anything? How come your midwife isn't doing anything? My doctor told me that if I went this far along, that it's really dangerous. And then, you know, even though that you're strong and and you know, these things are going to happen to you they can't help but so they start to chip away at your Mm -hmm. your armor yeah and i would even just say i'm due that month i wouldn't even get that specific you know and if they try and push you for a date just say it's really arbitrary only four percent of women deliver on their due date so it's better to just have a guest date or a, a due window is what I usually tell my family. So, you know, somewhere between 37 and 42 weeks, we expect to see your baby. And it's hard as humans these days where everything can be measured and predicted and we can see inside of our bellies and see our babies and know all these things. It's really hard to be in that not knowingness of when is labor going to start? When am I going to meet my baby? When is all this stuff going to but the more you can just surrender to the mystery of it all, um, listen, it's quite some, beautiful. And some moms want to know every detail. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I have clients in my my practice who who could not wait to know the the sex of the baby. Yeah. So they did the NIPT testing or whatever else, and then there are others that said, you know, in big bold letters, I wrote across the top of their chart does not want to know sex. So <laughs> if I did an ultrasound or something like that, I'd be very careful not to give it away. It's the same mm-hmm. thing here. There are people who 
really want to know a due date because they, they're, they're, I don't know if they're type A or OCD or it's just, that's how they function. It's perfectly fine for them to have that, but it's going to potentially lead them into um, some anxiety that they would not orderly have if they could just sort of let go of that a little bit and not pay so much attention to it. But still, even somebody who's type A who wants to know the exact due date, they're not going to know when their baby is coming unless they go in for a medical intervention and force that baby to come on a day. Other than that, they're going to have to surrender that they don't know when their baby is coming because it's it, it, it's still nature. You cannot control it. And let me tell you something, mama bears that are listening or papa bears, your baby is going to be the one who's in control. And this is a beautiful way to start to practice that we're not really in control of anything very much in life. We kind of have to go with the flow. And the more you try and control it, you're right. The type A personalities, the more that they want to try and control that, the more that they feel frustrated with the natural methods. How's this for a theory? You gave those numbers from the Woods method where you said um, there were 31 women, 31 prime hips who had an average of 288 days and there were 83 mole tips who had an average of 283 days. That's the Mendendorf uh, study, but yes. Oh, mm-hmm. Mendendorf. Could, couldn't it possibly be that the prime hips were five days longer than the mole tips because prime hips are normally more nervous than mole tips? <laughs> Maybe. Because I like we it's know, an interesting theory. We know if we get back to the mammalian birth issues, that mammals, when they're un, un, under undue stress, whether it be starvation, predation, uh, forest fire, uh, just being disturbed or, or whatever, they will not go into labor until they feel it's as safe as possible for them to do it. So it is an interesting thing that, uh, you know, the other theory could be, well, the cervix is softer and gives out faster. But I, I don't think that that has anything to do with making the uterus contract. That may have to do with incompetent cervix, which is again a term you hate. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but with this one, why should there be a difference in primips and multips? That's a really yeah. interesting thought. And mostly because because in my experience, primips generally worry more than multips. Mm, interesting. But interesting again, theory. Yeah, it's a it's a theory. The numbers mm-hmm. aren't gonna have uh, a statistical significance, so we're not gonna know. And what's interesting in my own papers. Um, on my breach paper, we looked at uh, 60 breaches, 109 cephalic moms. And um, even though those numbers also don't reach statistical significance, the breach moms went an average of 39 weeks and six days. And the vertex moms went an average of 40 weeks and one day. So 40 weeks was the actual average in my practice. Mm-hmm. Whereas 21 weeks or 41 weeks or 40 weeks and three days. like For like twins. About, no, this was the breach in... Um, my breach paper, which was breach. Oh, and breach. Okay. Twins, twins average was 39 weeks. That's different. Mm-hmm. But, but so I'm just, just a theory. I've been looking at these numbers. I'm going, why would it be longer for my, uh, for prime hips? And maybe, and then we were, because we were talking about the con- women who want to control things. Mm-hmm. First time moms are probably a little more diving into their pregnancy. By the time you're a second time or third time mom, it's like, hell. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this is, stuff and you don't think about yeah. it so you go into labor sooner i just think that that's a reasonable thing and if it's true if it's potentially true then it's just another 
emphasis on why you should try to think happy thoughts while you're pregnant. You should try to watch comedies. You should try to make love. You should try to get some sunshine, get outside and, and don't be reading all this scary stuff is get off your Instagram feed. You know, the world isn't going to end because they're coming uh, chem trailing or putting engineered mosquitoes out there. Or any of that stuff. I mean, I could go on about that. For <laughs> <laughs> Time to wrap up. So what do you else? Yes. Think? What else? What do you think we should say about this? I don't, I'm, I'm good. Do you have something else you want to say? You're out. I'm out. No, I'm out. I think I got all my, I got okay, all my. Good. good. Um, Don't let people pressure you. That's the, that's the main thing is obviously there's all these different ways of looking at it. Some of them are very arbitrary. Even the scientific ones are not totally accurate. And even if you get the perfect estimated due date, estimated date of confinement, um, only four to 5% of you are going to actually deliver on that date. So go and have a good time. Like Stu said. Yeah, even if IVF, when you know where conception occurred, it's not going to exactly happen 266 days later. It's just not, that's not how it's going to work. <laughs> no, it's it, nature. It probably will go longer because IVF moms tend to probably be more worried about mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, thank you for giving us this hour plus of your time. Thank you for being our fellow travelers. Please support our sponsors. Element needed. Birth fit. Birth fit. <laughs> you chime in. I didn't want to give them all away. Yes. <laughs> um, and make sure that if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your uh, friends and go on to your podcast app and um, rate us because it helps other people find us. And that is our mission to get common sense information out there into the world and help people have great, beautiful pregnancies. And until next time, have a great morning afternoon, evening, and middle of the night. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram.